thanks, love. Amen. I agree with you. Anyway, that's, that's the little bit of family stuff I want to do. We're back in the book of Revelation, <clears throat> and uh, I'm excited. I don't know about you. We've been out of it for the last eight weeks. In fact, we started preaching the series last year, January. And so we've been in the book of Revelation for the last 12 months, uh, and we'll probably be in it for the next 10 years. <laughs> I'm just kidding. In fact, if things go according to plan, our plans, obviously God can change this up. But I think that there's a possibility that we might be done with the series before summer begins. And that's just a hope, guys. And so just don't get too excited, but that's the plan, okay? But because we've been out of it for eight weeks, and I know some of you might be hearing Revelation preached for the first time here at Hope Rock Church, or perhaps first time in your life, I do want to recap because we just need to remind ourselves where we've come from. So the book of Revelation is an interesting book. We see it as one book in the Bible, but it's actually a book that's comprised of eight sections. Now, some may believe that these eight sections in the book of Revelation are separate, distinct events that happen throughout the book, and it all depends on how you interpret the book of Revelation. I'm not here to tell you how you should personally interpret it, but I am going to teach it the way I interpret the book of Revelations, and if you disagree with me, that's fine. Many people do, and they are quite vocal in telling me that as well, so that's fine. But I'm going to tell you that I believe the book of Revelation is not eight separate distinct events. It's one event that God's talking about. It's the plan of God to redeem humanity from this world and his church through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The chosen vehicle for Jesus to do that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it contains all sorts of crazy graphic stuff in it. It can be fearful. It can feel be sometimes expands as we start to see this ever-increasing spiral. We see this one event from different points in the spiral, each time going at another level and another level, but looking at these things from different perspectives. It all started with the seven churches. Revelations 1 and verse 9, John sees the resurrected Jesus Christ. He appears to him on the island of Patmos. And what he does is he gives John seven letters for seven churches, real churches that existed in Asia Minor. And even though the letters were written to specific and real churches, what we know because of the number seven is that these letters were written to the church. All of us, every church, even the church planting people that are here with us this morning, their church too. It's not just us that get this revelation. Everybody who's a believer gets it. And in those letters, we find a couple of things. We find encouragements and we find rebukes. This is what you should be doing. This is what you need to stop doing, friends. And believe me, at Hope Rock Church, we find many things that we were doing that we shouldn't be doing. And so we have to make corrections. But the one thing that I take out of the seven churches, apart from all the others, abandon us. Where's Jesus in all the craziness of this world? Sorry, I'm just reading the latest sports scores. I'm joking, I'm starting my clock. <laughs> Jesus is in the midst of his churches. He's walking about his churches. He is concerned with his church. He's concerned with the life of his church. He's concerned with the people in his church. And that, friends, gives me a huge amount of hope to know that the King of Kings is right here with us right now. And that goes in Revelations chapter 4. John is sort of going on this next layer of the spiral and he's transported to heaven in the seven seals. And what he sees is God the Father seated on a throne. And in his right hand, he's holding the scroll. That scroll represents God's plans and purposes for all of us, his church and for humanity and for the redemption of his creation. The only challenge is nobody in heaven is worthy to open the scroll. And so John has a little bit of a moment that he starts to cry. He's like, oh no, what are we going to do? Nobody can open the scroll until Jesus shows up. Jesus given the keys, the ability to unlock those. To him was given a kingdom and an authority and a dominion, one that can never be shaken. Jesus is in control of the timeline, friends. That's what it tells us. And if Jesus is in control of the timelines, we should be excited, friends, because if it's him in charge, we'll get to where we need to go. John then sees this next part of the vision unfold in Revelations 8. 
And now he's not at the throne room, he's at the temple. And what John sees is seven angels given seven trumpets and the command from God the Father is for the angels to go and blow these trumpets. These trumpets represents the warnings to a world that has largely turned its back on God. Unfortunately, the trumpets deal with judgment, four natural judgments, earth, land, sea, and air, and three supernatural judgments. These are real judgments that are happening right now all around us. But what the judgments do and what these trumpets are designed by God to do is to warn humanity that in the face of judgment, in the face of calamity, in the face of all the desperate stuff that we see going on around us, there is still time to turn your hearts back to God. In the last section, God was opened for John. It's like John's given a behind-the-scenes peek at what's going on all around. And what he encounters is the cosmic nature of what we are truly dealing with as believers. I think I may have said this last week, but we so often think that what we can see and touch is what is real, but this, friends, is not what is real. The kingdom of God, the heavenlies, God's dominion is far more real than this. And because this is all we know, we make it all about this. But believe me, there is another dominion, friends, another kingdom, another place Lord, uh, that the Lord has made for us. It is far more real than this could ever be. And in that section, we were exposed to all these crazy characters, right? The dragon that represented Satan or represents Satan. Babylon, the harlot, that represents the systems of this world. More importantly, the corrupt, wicked systems of this world. We, we, we meet this woman who is pregnant, going to give birth to a child, who I said represents the church and the child of the promise, Jesus Christ. And nothing could stop him from coming. And nothing can stop him from ruling. And nothing will stop him from reigning. All that exists out there, it's false religion at its worst. And what this section taught us was that like humanity will have to face judgment, it is appointed for man to die once and face judgment. That's just the reality. Unfortunately, that's how it's going to be. But it's not just us that are going to be judged. All of these beings that have usurped themselves ahead of God or above God will be judged too. And what we found is that they will be conquered. They will be defeated and we will have the victory. And that brings us to our topic for this morning or our section, the new section. And that is called the seven bowls. I want to make no illusions to you this morning and tell you this is going to be a lot of fun. But it's not going to be a lot of fun because the seven bowls, unfortunately, deal with an uncomfortable aspect of God's nature. And that is the nature of God in which he displays his displeasure or some people. And what will become clear as we progress through the section is that the seven bowls of God's wrath or wrath actually parallel the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets and the seven bowls are opposing sides of the same coin. And you might think, well, what does that even matter? Why, does that, why is that important for us to understand? Well, let me explain that to you. Because I believe we're seeing one event from different perspectives, we're not seeing two distinct events. There's not going to be a time for wrath and a time for judgment and, and trumpets. It's going to happen all together. But there is good news in that reality. And I'll tell you why there's good news. Because if it means that the seven trumpets of God are still sounding and the bowls of God's wrath are ultimately the result of people rejecting the gospel, it tells us as a church today that there is still time for us to reach people with the gospel. You see, the trumpets are the warnings. Don't do this. Turn your backs. Because believers at the offset. Because after all, if the wrath is for those that reject the gospel, then we are not the, the, the target of God's wrath, right? We aren't. It's the truth, right? And that is pretty good news. I've got to admit that I'm pretty excited about that fact. But for us to believe that that's the only good news is a problem. 
I say that because of what we heard about last week as a result of our prayer and fasting. Jeremiah chapter 29, what did it say? It said this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We are the exiles. We are sojourners in this world. Catherine said it last week. We said it again this morning. We said it in our prayer meeting. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. We are in the systems of this world, however. Now you'd expect God to say, well, listen, dig a bunker, build a shed, and don't go outside. No, he says build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Molt exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You see, when we start to think that the good news in Revelations is that we are safe and we are not the object of God's wrath, it makes us not want to live out what God just told us to do. It's good news this morning, friends, because in seeking the welfare of the city, there is time for the people in this city to repent. And it's with that perspective that I want to set up the bowls of wrath for us this morning. I want to keep that perspective in mind for us today. And to do that, I've got three truths in seeking the welfare of our city and its people that we will find in this text in Revelation. I want to say we're not going to get to the bowls today themselves. We're just going to set up the series. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelations 15 and verse 5. We're going to read six verses this morning. But let me pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for showing up the way you have, Lord. Holy Spirit, thank you for just to preach your word, Lord, that you would fill every single word with your anointing, that your power would be made manifest here today, and that you would be glorified, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 5 of Revelations 15, we're going to read the first half, starts like this. It says, after this, this is how we know we're in a new section, right? Because John's just finished seeing what he saw in the visions. And what you'll remember, what he saw at the end of the visions was the, ta- the tabernacle or the, t- the, the Holy of Holies. And he saw the Ark of the Covenant. He also saw Satan being defeated just before that. And I says, after this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And that gives us our first truth. You see, the first truth for us this morning is this. In seeking the welfare of the city and the people of the city that we've been called to, we have to understand that the only protection that anyone in the city ever hopes to have against the wrath of God is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're exposed to a different picture or a new piece of scenery. It's not just telling us that John moved from this place to this place. It's communicating a far more deeper message to us. This is the first time throughout the book of Revelation that the temple is referred to as the tent of witness. It's never happened before. And it's significant. I say it's significant because it tells us two things about where John is at the moment. The first thing about the tent of witness that we need to understand is that this is actually the Holy of Holies. In the earthly tabernacle, this is the place where you know, the priest would go in once a year only after purifying himself and he would go in there you know, connected to a piece of string and he would have bells on his robe. Why? Because sometimes the glory of God and the holiness of God would kill him right there if he wasn't purified. I mean, this is a place that you know, literally angels dared to tread and you'll see that this morning. He could go in there once a year on special occasions to do the offering that he needed to do the day of atonement that inside of it contained the laws, the laws given by God to Moses. And so what the tent of witness represents is it's talking about the holiness of God. 
It's talking about the holy character of God, the holy nature of God, the fact that God cannot stand anything that does not meet his level of perfection. I don't know about you, but that's a problem for me because I'm not perfect. But there is something else that we learn from the tent of witness, something that I think we need to hear about this morning. It's far more than just the holy character of God as if that wasn't enough, it is enough. Believe me, God's holy character is more than enough. But there is something else in there that we need to understand. The word witness in the Greek is the Greek word maturion. And what it means is testimony. You see, the tent of the witness is the tent of the testimony. Which testimony? It's the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Holy of Holies, you're in trouble. But you enter the Holy of Holies with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished everything that the law required and demanded in perfection, you are 100% safe. And if you consider that the bowls are the opposite side of the same coin as the trumpets, it's again reminding us that there are countless people today who still have not rejected the gospel. And it's up to us, friends, as the church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just Hope Rock Church, but definitely Hope Rock Church too, and definitely Rescue Church, and definitely every other church in the city, to ensure that they know that they have time to help people make the right decision. But I want to say this to you, friends, for us to be able to go to the world and help them make the right decision or at least expose them to the truth, we need a church that is highly mobilized. And if we're honest, Satan has done a great job of immobilizing it. He looks like a... No, not he doesn't look like a contra member. He looks like a lamb. The beast that looks like a lamb. Not a dragon, not a monster, a lamb, a cute and cuddly lamb. The same way Jesus is depicted throughout the Bible, reminding us that Satan deceives the church through what? Through false, counterfeit Christianity. Something that looks so close to a Christianity that you start to buy into it, but it's actually not a Christianity that any of us should ever believe. Over the years... Satan has done his deceptive work. And the church, friends, unfortunately, and I'm not saying we are excluded from this, we have to be mindful of this, has done a great job of allowing itself to become deceived or diseased, and as a result, has become immobilized. I'll give you some examples, and I know I'm going to make some friends, not friends anymore today. What I meant by that is some of you won't be my friends after this morning. Satan has immobilized the church through the proliferation of all sorts of Gospels. One of them is the political Gospel. It's the church that's more concerned with politics and political outcomes than it is with the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that the church should not have influence over political systems or should not influence people in political power, but here's the deal. The truth is only one person can change the world. His name is Jesus. So let's preach Jesus and not politics, friends. He's immobilized the church through the prosperity Gospel. It's a church that has forgotten that we live for eternity and what we believe is we live for the here and now and we've turned God into some benevolent benefactor. If we rub the lamp the right way and we name it and claim it enough times, then God will give us what we want, friends. That is not scriptural, friends. And let me tell you something. God is not concerned with giving you things. He's concerned with giving you His Son. His Son can redeem you. Our life is not in this world. It's not of this world. It's in this world. But our eternity is in heaven with Jesus. Abandon them. Can you imagine what the persecuted church in Iran thinks about the prosperity gospel? I dare anyone in this room to go to the church in Iran and say, you know, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and blessed, friends. 
They just like, they just killed my wife. They raped my daughter and they put me on the stand and you know what? I'm prepared to die for my faith. There is no such thing as a prosperity gospel because let me tell you, the one thing we are assured of in this world is suffering. Satan's done a great job of immobilizing the church through a progressive gospel. You know, many years ago, there was a Puritan who lived, his name was J.C. Rowell. And he wrote something long before we're dealing with the stuff we're dealing with today, but it just, it just it sums up what I believe the progressive gospel is. He says there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which may have and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity, which offends no one and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. The progressive gospel was doing is not dying for our sins on the cross. He was doing some sort of political statement. Friends, that's not going to save you. The blood of Jesus that atones for our sins will save us. There is a world headed to hell and they need to know about it. And this one nobody will like because, you know, Satan also immobilizes the church to the gospel of religion. It's a church that's become so self-righteous that we start to hide away. We start to separate ourselves and never want to have anything to do with all of those ungodly people out there, friends. Now, we should not become like them, but we're not called to just abandon them. That we are the only hope that they have because we have in us Christ. You know, and you think that'll never happen to me. I love the lost. Of course, I'm going to go out there. Really, do you love the lost? I know that there's many times where I have not loved the lost. And if you think it can't happen to us as a church, friends, it happened to the church in Ephesus. The same church who 30 years earlier was changing the entire world that they knew against you. You have forgot your first love. Do you know what their first love was? It was the love for Jesus that drove them to reach a lost and dying world and not shun it. The answer is not in hiding away from the world, friends. It's in going into the world and preaching the gospel to all nations. The point in all of this is that the only thing that stands between humanity and the wrath of God, you see that my voice is breaking, I'm finally growing up, is the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the only thing that stands between an eternity in hell or an eternity in heaven. And today, it's more important than ever before that we realize that the one thing we cannot do or cannot afford to do is be distracted or to be deceived by the enemy. We need to preach the gospel. And that, friends, is seeking the welfare of the city. Verse 6. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. The question is, Will they face Jesus the lamb or will they face Jesus the lion? These angels are dressed in exactly the same way Jesus was described in Revelation chapter 1 verse 13. And it's not just by accident that they described in the same way that Jesus was. It's telling us that these angels are representing the work that Jesus Christ himself is bringing to bear. I know we all love this idea and this notion of Jesus, meek and mild, born in a stable, friends. But let me tell you, the stable was 2,000 years ago, friends. He is not in a stable right now. He is ruling and he is reigning. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega or Omega, according to Mark. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he roars, he will destroy every piece of sin. These angels are carrying, they're not carrying soft toys for the world. They're not carrying like books and, you know, self-help books or philosophies. And we'll see that they do correlate to those quite a lot. But these particular plagues remind us that the purpose of the church is to bring an important message to the world. 
We have a message in us that needs to be told. And if you're wondering what the message is, let me read something to you from the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 21. It says, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Other translations end that verse by saying this, I will further bring upon you seven plagues according to your sins. The context there was God was speaking to the nation of Israel. And what he was saying to them is if you, Israel, my chosen people, would just turn away from your idolatry, you could be saved. That message from Leviticus is the same message that is told to us in the book of Revelation. Now you might think, but Leviticus is Old Testament. The Baptist was arrested. Jesus had this to say. He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word for repent is the Greek word metanoia. It means to change the way we think to do an about turn, to instead of running away from God, run towards God, friends. Do you know that the, call, the church is called to pe- preach a message of repentance? We don't like that. We don't like to talk about preaching repentance anymore. We like to talk about preaching grace. We like to talk about preaching unending love. We love to talk about the fact that everybody's included and everyone gets a participation trophy in the end, friends. That is not true. The Bible tells us to preach repentance. We become less about the message of repentance and we become distracted about us so many different things, friends. The church has become distracted with its programs. All we're interested in doing is having as much programs as the church next door so that in competition, we, we become less about the message of repentance and more about people's comforts. We just want everyone to be comfortable. We want everyone to feel safe in church. We want everyone to feel loved. But like Catherine said last week, that's not loving to tell people that they're going to hell. I mean, it's not unloving. Loving people means we tell them the truth. The church has become so distracted that it's not preaching this message anymore because it's become about entertainment. We're more concerned with performances than we are with encounters. We put gifting ahead of character. And we look at people and say, man, your voice just sounds like the rushing of many waters, man. You need to be singing. Regardless of what your character is, regardless of how messed up your marriage is, regardless of how you're struggling right now just to keep yourself standing up because you're suffering with depression, no, you will get on that stage and you will sing because you know what? Our people came here to hear you sing. The church is burning people out, left, right and center, killing people. I've heard of people that are worsted in excellence than we are in faithfulness to the message of repentance. Now there's nothing wrong with being excellent, but let me tell you, it does not come at the expense of preaching the gospel. If there's something that you can get out of every church that you go to, it should be that Jesus Christ is real, that your sin is very real and his blood paid for it, regardless of how the service went. Being concerned with the welfare of the city means that we are concerned with the people in our city. And that means we are concerned whether one day they will meet the lamb that was slain for their sins or the lion of the tribe of Judah who will devour them for their sins, friends. Verse seven. And one of the four living creatures, you see, see if it makes me angry. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the plagues of the seven angels. There is no switching it off. There's no saying, okay, Lord, we've had enough. Can you please stop? It has to reach its conclusion. 
the first thing that we see in this verse is we've got those weird living creatures again, the ones with eyes all over them, face like an eagle, face like an ox, face like a man, face like a eagle, ox, man, and hang on, it's going to come to me right now. Don't be like jumping ahead of me. Ox, eagle, man, lion. How could I forget the lion? Thank you. Thanks for reminding me. Telling us that creation itself is going to be used as an agent in God's wrath, right? It's the same thing as the seven trumpets. The first four trumpets, earth, land, sea, and air, well, that's what's going to happen in the seven bowls. You'll see it. It's going to be a bowl against the earth, a bowl against the land, a bowl against the seven the rivers, and a bowl against the sea. But this glory thing is what gets to me. You know, in Exodus 40, verse 34, when God fills the tabernacle long before the temple was ever built, it says that when the glory of the Lord God himself, but there is a sense that there is a glory of God that no one can behold. Because let me tell you, when the undiluted presence and glory of God shows up, no one can be there. Not the angels, not the living creatures, not John, not the saints in heaven. Nobody can. Why? Because it's so powerful. It's so holy. It's so perfect. Isaiah explains why this is a problem. He says in Isaiah 6 verse 1, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and, on the train of his, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then above him stood these living creatures, seraphim, each at six wings, two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And here's why the glory of God is a problem for us. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you know that holiness and the holiness of God means that God is absolutely perfect and endlessly perfect. Not just in moments, but all of the time. And the Lord, he can't stand for anything that is not perfect. Tozer makes it clear this way. He says, since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health. It's amazing. God's first concern is its moral health. Not whether we're healthy, wealthy, or successful. That is, it's holiness. Whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. When he arises to put down iniquity and save the world from irreparable moral collapse, he is said to be angry. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. God's wrath cannot be switched off like a faucet until it has accomplished all that it set out to accomplish for us and for the lost and dying world out there. Is that there is one protection from the holiness and the wrath of God. And that protection comes not in the form of our religion. It doesn't come in the form of our good works. It doesn't come in the form of how much time we spent on our knees praying. It comes in the form of the shield that only the blood of Jesus can provide. That's the only thing that is impervious to the glory of God, is the shield of the blood of Jesus. Why? Because he is holy, absolutely, perfectly, and endlessly. Revelation 16 verse 1 continues, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out the, on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. The voice that we hear here in Revelation is the same voice that we heard in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 4. It is the voice of God himself. And what we notice is he says to the angels, Go. He doesn't say wait until all of this stuff has happened in sequence at a specific time and then you can go on one day on judgment day that wrath is exclusive for judgment day. And you know what the challenge with that is, is that it, it sort of fuels the apathy that we have as a church. 
Because we think, oh, we still got time. You know, we can still carry on eating and drinking and marrying and doing all this stuff. But these are the days of Noah, friends. The bowls of God's wrath are not for some distant moment in time. Because if they are the opposite side of the same coin as the trumpets, if people have rejected the trumpet warnings, then they are facing the wrath of God right now. It's happening all around us. It happens everywhere we go. And what should break our hearts this morning as a body of believers is that when the wrath of God is poured out in somebody's life, there is no further opportunity for them to repent. It's too late. Paul says something interesting in Romans chapter 1 and verse 14. He says, I'm under obligation both to so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. Paul himself was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Why? Because he knew he was under a compulsion, a compulsion that is ultimately born from the reality that every single human being right now, not at some distant moment in the future, is facing the wrath of God, that they could still have an opportunity to repent. In fact, he says in verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven right now. It's being revealed, it's present tense, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Friends, we still have time. I don't know how much longer we have and I don't know how long it'll take for God to come back. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. But that's actually not what's important this morning because right now from heaven, the wrath of God's judgment are arriving for others. Today's the day where the church has to rise up. We have to stop being immobilized. We need to start advancing. We need to start pushing back the gates of hell. Matthew chapter 16. We need to storm the gates of hell and pull as many people out of the gates of hell as possible. Paul in Romans chapter 1, probably one of my favorite verses is verse 16. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The question that I'll leave us with this morning as I close, Dan can come up, is Hope Rock Church, are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we ashamed to preach this message of salvation to a lost and dying world? Or do we find ourselves right now, maybe the Spirit of God is doing something to you, and believe me, I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you, because there's been many moments in my life born from a reality that only the Spirit of God can place in us. And maybe you're sitting here thinking to yourself, but I don't have that reality. I don't feel the desire to want to preach to the lost. I don't feel a burning passion in my heart to want to go out there and tell my friends that they're about to go to hell, because I'm scared of how they'll respond. That's okay, I get it, friends. We've all been there. But maybe this morning is the opportunity that we can all have to stand up and say, Lord, fill me with your power. Fill me with your presence. Let your Holy Spirit come upon me in a way that I've never experienced before so that I can become the man of God that you would like me to be or woman of God. And so while everyone here is seated, can I ask you, if that's you this morning, if you need that, if you need that anointing, if you need that thing broken in you that is withholding you from sharing the gospel the way we should. And I'm standing up myself because I need this prayer too. But if you like me need to have that power from God from on high, can I ask you to stand where you are? Just stand up right now. Just stand. Name one person in this room who hasn't missed an opportunity to preach the gospel and I think God will strike me dead right now. 
The truth is every one of us have missed opportunities at some moment in time. And so this morning, I want to pray for courage. Why? Because seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so raise your hands to the King. Lord Jesus, we know that this message that you've imparted to us, Lord, is not a motivational talk. It's not here to inspire us to become super saints. It's not here, Lord, so we can feel like we are better than the world out there. It's been given to us, imparted to us, so that you could give us newness of life. Our salvation, Lord Jesus, is a product of what you did on the cross. It's got nothing to do with us. We believe in faith. We repent of our sins and we are saved. Heart, Lord, that is so desperate to seek and save the lost. Not through judgment or condemnation or we're better than you and you suck. No, but let me talk to you about Jesus. The Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, who takes you as you are, not as you should be. The Jesus who loves you and wants to see you saved, redeemed and set free. Give us the boldness today, Holy Spirit. Empower us, Lord, as a church. Help us to reach more people than we ever thought was possible. And I pray that over the young people in this church too, those that are stuck in schools that are filled with filth and worlds that are filled with filth, give them the boldness to speak truth, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. And the church said, Amen. Let's sing.